Welcome to the Ramble Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Primus, father, entrepreneur, filmmaker, athlete, hopeful writer, and dedicated wanderer. I'm curious to learn more about how people live their lives, their struggles, and passions, and pains. So every week, with athletes, entrepreneurs, healers, adventurers, and beyond, I'm going to have unbound and uncensored long-form conversations about people, places, pursuits, and performance. Enjoy. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome back to The Ramble. I have a very cool, cool guest today. His name is RJ Smith. He is a friend, somebody I've known for a very long time and unfortunately haven't seen in a very, very, very long time. We'll get a little bit into that. But before we do so, I'm going to read you RJ's bio because he has done some incredible things in his life. Going from a child actor to an adult actor can be a circus ride. We all know and have heard horror stories there. But luckily, things worked out for the actor RJ Smith. The Southern California native began his professional career some 28 years ago. In 1997, he garnered the lead role in Nickelodeon's The Journey of Alan Strange and in 2000 recurred as Cat. Cadet Finley. Did I say that right, RJ? You could tell me. <laughs> Almost. Cadet <laughs> Finley. <laughs> there we go. On, on Fox's Malcolm in the Middle. Directly following his high school graduation, RJ landed his first feature film co-star role against Dennis Quaid, Jake Gyllenhaal, and Emily Rosam in the blockbuster hit The Day After Tomorrow, which I saw. I loved, although it, that was a long time ago. 2012, Smith began a three-season run as a series regular on TNT's Perception, starring Eric McCormick, Rachel Lee Cook, Kelly Rowan, and LeVar Burton. After the series run, RJ would go on to play recurring characters on TNT's Major Crimes, FX's Sons of Anarchy, such a great show, RJ, and TBS is The Guest Book. Currently, he reoccurs as James Murray on ABC's The Rookie. Man, what a career. For many years, Smith has been a champion for many organizations, including, oh, Brit, Brit, Braille Institute. How do you say that, mate? Braille, Braille Institute, yeah. yeah. Kids for Kids and Revlon Run Walk for Women. He's a board member of the KISS Foundation, founded by Kiki Shepard, which brings awareness to the sickle cell. Since the beginning of his career, RJ has been blessed with an immense amount of support from his family and friends. That support extended in 2015 when he married his lovely wife, Brittany Scott Smith. I can attest she is the loveliest woman on the planet. <laughs> the power couple have a three-year-old son, a one-year-old daughter, and reside in New York City. That's where we met. Smith continues to seek new arenas where he can offer his inspiration and creative services. Random Facts enjoys making hip-hop beats. In the 90s, went on a tour with Reebok and Nike as a hip-hop dancer. Dude, I have not seen your dance moves. Knows <laughs> American Sign Language, learned to juggle at the age of 13 on set of Nick Farino's licensed teacher. Welcome to the Ramble, RJ. Hey, did I butcher that too bad? <laughs> no, you did good. It was good. It was good. It was good. How did Thank I not you. know about the dancing? Well, it's a little rusty, so I don't know if I've executed any moves around you. But yeah, man, I used to be a professional dancer. I uh, started off when I was 10, dancing for Reebok. And then about 12, I transitioned uh, over to Nike. I was with a dance group troupe called uh, Culture Shock mm. here in Los Angeles. Uh, which I am in L.A. as we're doing this. I'm uh, uh, bi-coastal, so here we're filming. Uh, not home in New York right now. But, uh, yeah, when I was born, in, was born and raised here in L.A., and uh, when I was out here on a younger, I used to dance. And, man, ended that right after, actually right before I did the day after tomorrow. I was mm -hmm. like, 
think I'm gonna go ahead and uh, just hang these shoes up and uh, <laughs> these break dancing moves up. And uh, <laughs> it's a great party trick, though, right? Like have the have the dancing skill. You're you're just at a you know all of us are kind of just doing the thing, and then do you actually have the out. skill all of a sudden? <laughs> I bust out a kick split at my wedding. Uh, I did an Epsom salt bath right after, and I was good. But, the uh, hamstrings yeah. weren't ready for it. <laughs> oh, man, everything. <laughs> the whole lower half was like RJ. <laughs> Stretch. <laughs> so, yeah. Like, uh, honey, I need a day or two before. <laughs> I need a massage. <laughs> Were you doing any of that on, on any of the TV shows? Like, I know Disney... I wasn't sure about Nickelodeon, but obviously Disney has a lot of the dance involved with the... yeah. Know, Disney was more with the singing, the acting and the dancing. Nickelodeon at that time really wasn't implementing the whole dancing, singing mm-hmm. culture. Uh, I think they've kind of implemented that a little bit more now in more recent times. Uh, but no, everything I was doing on Nickelodeon was just straight acting. All the shows I've been on, honestly, I mean, you know, you have those like dance scenes where you're just like grooving to a beat that they actually never even use in the actual episode so it looks like you don't have rhythm um you know that's really been the extent of my dancing on film but uh yeah growing up um outside of set life i was yeah i was a part of different uh little groups little cypher dance cypher groups and we would just you know break dance or pop and lock uh that was more so my expertise i used to do a little bit of tapping a little bit of jazz and uh, yeah, man, I used to be very flexible. Uh, it's I, I will tell people all the time, maintain certain yeah, things. Yeah. If you don't use it, you will lose it. That is a true fact. 38 now, I'm not getting on the floor for anything. Uh, I love to play with my kids. And even that is now, woo, my son likes to play horsey. So, you know, you get on all fours, he jumps on my back and he's like, horsey, my knees can only take about a good five minutes of that and right. i'm like okay all right son <laughs> i'm gonna need you to get off now. <laughs> i feel you i feel you like uh, when i jump on the trampoline with my daughter well my daughter's but the youngest one she's now i don't know 40 pounds Woo. and then you just feel that like spine compressing with every jump and then you know this year i'm like babe i can't do it anymore and we're just gonna hold hands that's it Dude, hold hands. you can't you can't holding hands is very it's safe it's, it's, <laughs> it's pleasant. No, one's getting hurt, right? <laughs> no one's getting hurt i'm like let's just walk in the park but yeah i mean your body you start feeling it as you get older bro you do i was watching or not watching i i saw i don't know some point last year joe rogan at i don't know 50 something he's full splits full splits and i and i was like I was like, well, if he could do that, you know, I'm going to, I'm starting on like the, the 10 year journey where every, every week I get every, a millimeter, every just, just a millimeter. <laughs> and if you keep stretching, you, you, you'll get there. It's going to take a lot longer. Uh, yeah. But if it's a goal, you, you can definitely get there. Uh, can, you, can you touch your toes? Oh yeah. I can still touch oh, okay. my toes. You can still, still, you can still touch, touch your toes. Cause still, that's the thing. Like a lot of people can't even, my Touch dad is, toes. I mean, my dad is 74, but yeah, I remember at least a good 10 years ago, like, you know, touching his toes. I was making jokes. <laughs> He's like, no, I just can't really touch my toes anymore. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, oh boy, okay. That's a real thing. You got to keep mm-hmm. stretching your body. Cause yeah, I mean, you've got, you've got people out here twice, triple times my age out here 
doing the splits, mm-hmm. uh, doing back bends, and you're like, wow, but they kept with it, you know? So, yeah. There's, there's, there's like these, uh, just a handful of really simple things. One being stretching. Stretching. Commitment to stretching. And one being commitment to hand-eye coordination mm. and a little bit of core strength. And those things alone can increase the longevity of your life. And, and what I mean by that is, the longevity of the quality of your life quality right exponentially just those three little things just those three little things bro the word quality is such uh it's that word has come up numerous times in the last gosh within the last couple weeks um simply because i talk about when when i'm away from my kids or away from my wife and i'm working right that's time lost and right now time is my greatest currency Mm-hmm. But when you do spend time with your family, it should be quality time. Mm-hmm. So even if you're, you know, you're getting a couple weeks out of every month with your kids, just because you're someone who travels like myself, what are you doing while you're with them? Mm-hmm. So even like exercising, if you're not doing quality exercise, exercise is not really going to be that beneficial. Mm-hmm. Uh, quality food, like anything you do, if the word quality isn't first. If that's not the preface, I don't want to say you're wasting, you know, your effort and your energy, but you're kind of wasting your efforts and your energy if it's not quality uh, that's what's being exerted. So if it's not quality exercise, quality time, um, you have to take a really good look at that. But I hand all that coordination that really benefits your balance mm-hmm. in life and finding your center. Mm-hmm. You know, the biggest thing is our core. You know how many people don't take care of their core? And they can't get up. They can't get up off a seat. Right. And all it takes, I don't know the exact data, is one fall to to dramatically uh, decrease Mm -hmm. your healthy time as a senior. Right. Right. One fall. And then one fall leads to a second fall. And it goes back to what you said. But it's also interesting, you know, when you talk about quality and, and, you know, someone who travels a lot like you, because you travel more than, you know, I used to travel (laughs) and that was a lot, right? Mm -hmm. Have you ever read uh, the way of the superior man? No. Right. David Dida. It's a, it's like a cult classic book on understanding masculine, feminine energy dynamics, Mm. but it's so that, that dynamic, and again, that doesn't mean male-female energy dynamics. It just it talks about the you know how someone with a high degree of ma- masculine energy is generally very directional, focused mm-hmm. on their goals, focused on their purpose. But right. where where you where you touched on that just reminded me of that was he talks a lot about those with with a high degree of masculine energy have to follow their purpose in life. Yes, they have to because that is what makes them energized, makes them the best version of themselves. But the balance, because, you know, we're always torn with that feeling like you're on the road right now. And it's like, ah, man, shit, I miss my kids. Mm -hmm. I miss my wife. I miss my bed. (laughs) And he talks about the quality of your relationship with your partners and your children is based not on the amount of time, but the amount of presence that you bring when you have that time. And I find that I found that when I was traveling, I was actually better at that because when I'm home all the time, 
you're just distracted more. You're just distracted by the garbage more. I'll just check my phone again. I'll just check my email again. I'll just keep busy because it's, it's, you take it for granted, right? They're just there. But when you've been away and you have that like longing that just builds in you. I think that's that for me, uh, was definitely a huge eye opener when, when we had our son. So when I had my first child, that whole perspective of quality time, how you spend your time really became uh, just a, a green light in my life because I'm watching my son and I'm watching how quickly he's growing up. And you're like, wow, OK, wait a minute. You're one now. OK, wait a minute. You're two now. OK, wait a minute. Now we have two kids. OK, now my son's three. My daughter will be two this summer. And you tend to go, where did the time go? Right. Like, where did the time? It just seems like it just, you know, the blink of an eye it was just gone. But I can say I can honestly say with my kids, what I've learned with them is when you're spending that quality time, you're investing in not just them, you're investing in yourself. And that's huge. Um, the awareness that we build. I tell people all the time, my kids are a part of my universe. They're not the center of my universe. And the reason I say that is I have to be strong. I have to make sure that I'm the best version of myself to be the best version for them. So when you really kind of acknowledge that, you then start to say, okay, well, how am I even spending my time when I'm by myself? <laughs> like, what am I doing for me to keep myself together? Not only how am I spending, how am I spending quality time with my wife, my kids, friends, family, but when I'm by myself, what am I doing? How am I feeding into this body? How am I feeding into my spirit, my soul, all those different variables. And so my kids just, again, they just made, they just opened up a perspective even wider where I started to go, okay, not only how am I treating the way I'm spending uh, uh, resources or just time with others, but how am I really internally spending my own energy? Um, Because life is short, man. Mm -hmm. You know this, life is short. Uh, we can't get yesterday back. And so when I'm with my kids, I really try to make sure I put my phone down, you know, put it in the drawer, put it in the drawer, (laughs) you know, it's try to be, you know, several feet away from it. It can be a challenge simply because I'm working. Mm -hmm. So I need to know if a schedule changed. I need to know if I got an appointment coming up. Uh, I got to know if I'm doing, you know, an amazing podcast with my buddy, Joe, like I got to know, I got to know what's going on too. But there comes a moment when you have to say, okay, that can wait mm-hmm. right now with my kids. They need my undivided attention. Okay. You know what? Right now I'm with my wife. Okay. You know what? Right now I'm with my parents. Let me go ahead and give them this, mm-hmm. this, this undivided attention. Mm-hmm. Um, but we got to be aware of that. Yeah, we do. And it's, there's this like, there's this misconception with this idea of sacrificing for our children Mm. in the sense of, yes, we have to sacrifice for our children certain things, but if we sacrifice too much of ourselves, one, and what I mean by that is we don't stay healthy. We don't stay healthy physically. We don't stay healthy energetically, mentally, mentally, (laughs) spiritually. We don't nourish those things because we think we just don't have the time to do it. Our children see that. And they, then there becomes a generational idea that, okay, well, having children means I no longer matter as an right. individual. Right. So I'm always encouraging, you know, my wife who can get caught up in the, you know, like, go have a bath with a face mask. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. It, sounds, it sounds 
pretentious, but it's not pretentious. It's 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 these just like this idea of healing, right? Mom and dad need a date. Mm-hmm. They need to they need to date each other because yeah. that is the health of the yeah. like the relationship, right? Keep the yeah. keep the attraction, keep the 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 sexual tension, keep all these things going. And, and in turn, we teach our children to have healthier relationships with themselves, with their partners, but also uh, we just feel better. We parent better. It's like when you're on the plane, right? And the flight attendant is going through all the instructions of in case of an emergency, in case of, uh, you know, crash landing, what to do, what not to do. But the one thing that always stuck out in my brain uh, and all the plane rides I have is have had when the mask come down, the whole theory behind that is you put yours on and then you assist the person next to you because you can't assist someone properly if you aren't, you know, put together, if you aren't safe yourself. So the whole idea is everyone first, get your mask on. Once you're good, then you can look to the person to your right or left and see if you need to assist them. And so, yeah, your kids need to see you being the best version of yourself. I always say, I've always said, if your child sees you being a bum, it gives them every right to be a bum. It just does, because that's what they're watching. If, they're, if your child is watching you be happy, productive, even mad or angry, but how you manage your anger, how you manage your frustration. Yeah, do you apologize? Like, do you do apologize? You... Are you, I tell my kids every day, we show respect, no disrespect. Those words, like that's a seed being planted into in their mental state. But again, as they get older, they'll understand how to execute that. My son is doing it now. He says, thank you all the time. Please, daddy. Thank you. Oops, excuse me. I burped. All these things. He it's it's an awareness of uh, in his life because he's watching us do it. Yes, we are also telling him to say thank you. But we are also saying thank you. Does he know how to uh, does he know how to give a legendary RJ hug? And I'll, I'll preface that be, because for those who haven't had a legendary RJ hug, when I first met you in New York and we were, yep. we were doing a, it was a filming shoot for a company I had called Naked Underwear. Mm-hmm. And you were selected as one of our truth ambassadors. And you gave, there's, there's the marketing team, there's a photographer, there's makeup. makeup. You gave every person like a one minute hug. <laughs> like it was, and it's not just, there's nothing creepy about it at all. I can attest to this, but it's it's a real hug. It's two hands. It's just the right amount of pressure, right? <laughs> Where did that come from? Has your son, has he cultivated the the RJ hug? He's he's on his way. He's he really is a my my daughter has actually cultivated it, which is yeah. actually surprising. My when I was in uh, New York, when I was home uh, a couple of weeks ago. I hugged my daughter and Joel, it was like, it was like how I hug people. And I said, Oh, wow. You like the right amount of pressure, the right (laughs) head turn, you know, the right amount of, of love. And like, this isn't disrespectful. I'm not being creepy, but it was like, wow, my daughter, like I said, Oh, this is sweet. My son, he kind of gives the church pat as I call it, but I like, Oh, Hey, how you doing? But he's getting there. But honestly, where it came from, uh, I think it is something that's innate. I think it's something that is uh, in my DNA because my mother's that way, Um, just the way she hugs people. But it's also, even though something can be in you, 
we decide the things that we actually flourish or, 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 or water or, or, or um, you know, kind of blossom. And so that was one aspect in me that I just felt it was a strong way to show people you see them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, hey, I see you. I may not know you personally. I may not see you again after this moment, but hey, there's someone that sees you right now. And I think a hug is a great way to show that. You have to also make sure you're not, you know, intruding on people's personal space or making anyone feel uncomfortable. But if someone allows me to hug them, my 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 DNA says it has to be authentic. Mm-hmm. Uh, just the other day, I shook a man's hand and I gave him a firm handshake and he goes, wow, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> It's like, but he appreciate, you know, it, it, you're, you're totally right. It's one of the trap. I don't want to say travesties. It will be a travesty if, if post pandemic and, you know, this six feet thing, this no hug thing, this no handshake yeah. thing doesn't come back because we humans have this innate di- desire to be seen. Yes. It may be egoically driven because we, you know, we don't feel seen by ourselves, et cetera, et cetera. You know, there's, there's a rabbit hole there we can go down. But bottom line is when somebody, when you go to Italy and they kiss you on the cheek and they give you a hug yeah. and, and when you get an RJ hug, when you get a firm handshake, you're like, wait a second. <laughs> I remember what it's like to be a human being, even for just a brief second. Right? Yes. yes. I mean, and that was, I, you, you, you definitely bring out a beautiful point when you mentioned Italy, because when my, my wife and I had a honeymoon there. Yeah, that's and right. You so, did. Yeah, we went out to Rome and Venice and it was like immediately there was this connection to the people. I'm, you know, I'm just walking around. Buonasera, grazie, prego. I'm just like, there was this immediate connection. We went to the 16th Chapel, uh, which was incredible. Yeah, but you just, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. But you yeah. feel this strong kind of vibration throughout, you know, uh, uh, throughout Italy, where the people are very much so enamored with the idea of seeing each other. Mm-hmm. And again, seeing each other can can translate into a handshake, a hug, a kiss, um, a conversation, but it's doing things with purpose. Mm-hmm. I think that's what makes that culture and just what makes, you know, an RJ hug or just the idea of feeling human is that when you're going to uh, execute something, have, do it with purpose, have intention. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, that's one thing, even if let's say we get to a point where you can't shake hands, let's say you can't hug, whatever the new form of communication is, do it with purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like back in the day, you know, our parents era of life, there wasn't phones, cell phones, there, there wasn't computers. So you gotta remember there was a time when people were actually writing letters. Mm-hmm. Now, if you actually write a love letter to someone, like you have to have the time to do it, but it actually is so much more meaningful to see a handwritten letter than, a t- than something you did on, you know, Word document. <clears throat> Not to say that Word document is insignificant, but when you receive a handwritten letter nowadays, it's, it's powerful because you see like, you see the person's, you know, penmanship, you see the mistakes that they made, you see, you know, a certain craftsmanship behind it and you go wow they took the time to do that for me rainer rainer rilke the famous poet oh yeah yeah he there is one of his more popular books is letters to a young poet Mm -hmm. and all it is was over i think it was a period of two years where him and this young poet Mm -hmm. 
were writing. He was, I guess he was the mentor and, and right. he was, they were writing letters to each other. Right. And not only are some of his greatest quotes pulled from just these letters that he had no intention, n- nobody ever would have thought right. would have been read. They weren't his published works. Right. Right. Which he had. Right. But the emotionality that comes out of his, some of his openings, I'm so sorry that it's been three months. And mm. uh, this, that, and the other happen. And of course you can do that with an email or a phone call, but right. you can just see it the time and energy pouring onto the page, right. probably him under candlelight, right. you know, just, just connecting with the moment in time where I'm going to write this person responding to what they said, yeah. you know, this, and, and giving it, God, how fast could he have written those hours? It had to, is my guess, right. you know, thinking about, it takes, I mean, trust me, just to write a thank you note takes me all day because it's, again, it's a certain uh, trade, a certain approach that we don't really implement as often. You know, yeah, when we were, I remember when I was younger, you know, you're in school, you're in the fourth, fifth grade, you know, all our reports were handwritten. Yeah. Like you had to do a book report. You, <laughs> you wrote the book, you wrote yeah. down your book report. By the time I got to high school, I'm typing my book reports. Yeah. I'm typing my assignments, you know. So that's just kind of change uh, in our society where we're just trying to get things done quicker. And I'm in such an I'm an advocate of, yeah, well, how do we get through this quicker? I get that. Mm-hmm. However, when it comes to those, you know, benevolent, beautiful, like rich moments of really trying to show someone uh, a, a depth of your sincerity about maybe how they made you feel or how they were there, you know, and showed their condolences and the, maybe a grieving moment, or mm-hmm. a grieving period of your life. When you see a handwritten letter, I know it takes me a minute for me. Cause it's like, okay, wow, I haven't done this in a while, mm-hmm. but I want to show that I care. Uh, and excuse me, audience, you know, you're going to hear this background gardening noise. We've already mentioned <laughs> it's mm-hmm. just I atmospheric love, <laughs> atmospheric love. I call it. But um, you're yeah. right, though, RJ. And, and also to that point about getting things done quicker, the most well, one, the, the most important things in life, it shouldn't be about how to get done quicker. It should be how to get to do this with more presence yes. and then finding the ability to do uh, it, to do everything with more presence. I try only one day a week. Because if I, if I did this every day a week right now, wow. I just probably couldn't do it. But to to my emails with more presence, mm. even, mm. you know, the crap ones that you don't just the routine responses is like, OK, for right. these two hours, I'm just going to write every single one of these responses, right. even if I don't know this person right. with presence. Right. And so and right. then, you know, the four days of the week, I'm flippant and. <laughs> you know, which which leads me to swipe. Yeah, right. <laughs> which which leads me to wanting to talk a little bit of your about your creative process and bringing that that patience, that presence, I should say, to the set and mm. how mm. how you prepare. I'd like to I'd like to really n- narrow in on the moment before you go on camera. Mm. Okay. And we can go elsewhere with that, but, but, you know, you're sitting on set all day, long waits, maybe people don't understand just quite how much pace Buddhist patients, actors have to cultivate in those moments. 
but what your process is to just bring that presence to a take and then a retake, mm-hmm. you know, and however many times you got to do the thing, you know, can you share an experience, a direct experience with mm-hmm. a moment in time? Well, the best correlation I can give would be uh, a sports uh, analogy. So it's like, if you take someone like LeBron James, great athlete, he's cultivated his skill. When you look at the process of putting a ball in a hoop, one might say, okay, like that doesn't seem too hard. (laughs) But what is hard is the accuracy. It is hard to put a ball in the hoop. Yeah, man. (laughs) To have the the level of accuracy at it, same thing as playing golf, to have the accuracy, that's where you go, well, how did you get to that point? And it's the same thing when it comes to let's, you know, in my, in my career doing dialogue, ultimately there's an accuracy rate that I have, which is why I get hired because you have to really like delve into the material. Uh, I just was uh, asked recently, like, Hey, RJ, how do you memorize dialogue? And I say, well, the first thing you got to do is you got to memorize what's happening. You have to know the emotions of the scene and the full story. How is my character walking into this moment? How is my character exiting this moment? What is my character's complete arc in this storyline? How do I start? How do I, what's the middle? And then how do I end? When you have that ingrained in your head and even your soul, and you know where you land, then you just start, you know, you start filling those emotions in with words. So yes, I'm constantly reading the script, constantly reading the words, but I'm more so memorizing how I'm feeling. Once I've got that here, I'm good to go. So if we need to do one take, five takes, 20 takes, uh, doing multiple takes is more so me having fun because I can give each take a different twist if I want to. Take two, I might give a little bit of, you know, zazz or this over here. And then take three, I might kind of, you know, do something that's more, you know, up and down. you can just have fun with it. But I know what I'm doing mentally. Now, I will say that is a gift because... Some things it's really hard to teach. I can teach someone the process of, hey, I learned my lines and memorize my lines. I learn how lighting works in the scene. I have to make sure I find my light in the moment. Okay, when I'm working with a fellow actor, I have to make sure, do I lean a little this way so the camera sees me or do I lean a little this way so the camera sees me? These mm-hmm. are just little techniques, but I can't teach someone passion. I can't teach someone uh, uh durability in a craft that maybe they're not built for. LeBron James could show me how to shoot a basketball all day, but if I don't have that ability and desire to really execute, I'm not going to have the same accuracy. So when it comes to, you know, being a thespian, I love what I'm doing. So there's this level of passion that this, this, you know, Buddhist, (laughs) you know, kind of uh, 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 dialing in point where you just go, okay, I love what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. So as soon as they call action, you just tap into something that I call God given, where it's just like, it, 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 it looks effortless. It kind of is. That doesn't mean I don't practice, but there's just something that's natural and very uh, uh, ingrained in me of uh, how to do this like with my eyes closed, which is why I've been doing it for almost 30 years. I, it's, it's just something great, but you have to, again, you have to know what you're good at. I think that's, uh, I don't know if that's superficial to say, but it's okay to not be good at everything. 
Oh, it's the zone. It's, the, it's, it's Guy Hendricks' zone of genius. It's 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 operating. You are best when you're operating in your zone of genius. But we have these preconceived ideas that we're not allowed to right to, right. to go there. Right. right? Like no, right. no, that's not right. that's not safe. That's not practical. Yeah. But there's a few things I want to unpack with what you just said that just you know intrigued me because I do agree with you on everything, and I find it really poignant that you bring up desire and passion because there's there's a thousand thousand hungry actors who want that same role oh, yeah. every, every day every time that fire mm-hmm. is there just like lebron like they're gunning for you every game and the media is going to tear you apart if you don't show up right and and you have to have you have to have passion and desire to right. to hold right. that the so, I mean, there was, again, there was a few things. One, how much of what you do in bringing that presence into the moment and that relies on a chemistry with your co-star and how do you mm-hmm. cultivate that together? Especially if you're thinking like, shit, <laughs> he or she's not bringing it right now. How do I, how do we lift each other? So we nail this scene. Right. Well, I call myself uh, an alley-ooper actor. So like in basketball, if you throw an alley-oop, the other person catches it, does a dunk or layup, whatever. I always have seen myself as a person who positions my fellow actors to shine. Mm-hmm. Now, technically, we're doing that for each other uh, in the energy and the, in, in the focus and the, in the performances that we're giving. We are helping one another. But sometimes you may have to do all the heavy lifting yourself if maybe your co-star isn't giving you a particular thing. So you have to know how to execute. It's like fourth quarter, you know, everyone's tired, but the superstar shows up. Superstar says, hey, I got to carry us, you know, across the finish line. And so you have to have that individually as a thespian where you say, okay, I got to give it my all and my best, regardless of what's around me. But I will say this because something you just said a second ago, you know, Desire and and passion are not are not necessarily the same as booking a job. What I mean by that is. If you don't book a job, you don't have to lose your passion or desire about something you're into. So there are people who are passionate about basketball and they go play at the local gym. They don't play basketball because they have to be in the NBA. Maybe that was a desire. Maybe they got there or they didn't. But if basketball is something that just fuels them, they're going to go to their local gym. They're going to watch it on TV. They're going to walk around their house with a basketball. That's just something that brings them joy. It's something that they have a desire and they have a passion. about. They have a a passion to talk about. I'm an entertainer. So for me, entertaining is my agenda. Whether I book a job or not. Booking a job is just the icing on cake and the proof in the pudding that uh, I love what I do, but it's also more show a more so a, a show and tell moment when I when people get to see something I'm doing on TV. There are there are so many individuals right now who want to be on TV. And I think one day you can get there if that's your goal. Keep pushing forward. But if you don't get on television, if entertaining is your desire, then don't lose that. Don't let that go. You just have to find your lane. You have to find your arena where you get to showcase your entertainment. So there are people who 
yeah, they love entertaining. So they become entertainers on cruise ships. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. <laughs> there are some people who they love entertaining. So they they delve into local theater. There are some people who love entertainment where they become voiceover actors. Mm-hmm. And that's all they do. There's some people they love entertainment and they become teachers at, 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 at high schools who put on stage productions for the youth or um, people at church who put on stage productions because entertainment is their thing. So a lot of times I've had to tell people being on television, getting paid for it, it's a huge blessing, but it's not my incentive towards being an entertainer. Yeah. Finding the love in, in what you do, no matter right. what that thing is. And, and to an, to an extent for you, cause you hear this a lot with, now it is my incentive towards paying my bills. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's actually kind of in line with what I was going to say because a lot of guys, well, I shouldn't say a lot. I hear a lot that, especially with comedians, but you, but actors, etc., where they say I'm doing this, whether I'm broke, whether it's the you know it's the off 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 Broadway. It's the, you know, it's the, it's, it's the cruise ship where everybody gets food poisoning. They don't care. They're right. going to keep doing the stand up, the performances. Right. And they choose that. And then, you know, a good, you know, if you do that long enough, there's a, there's a better chance that you're going to break through, but there's no guarantees. Right. No guarantees. There's no guarantees. And that's the thing. It's like being consistent is the name of the game. Mm-hmm. You want to stay consistent and inconsistency one day, you might get the call of your life. Mm-hmm. You're extremely prepared because you've been doing it all these years. Um, but again, if you don't, if this is your commitment and you're just like, again, fueled by it, then that's what you're going to continue to do. Rich or broke, doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Now, again, if you're a person who has a significant other, kids, yeah. you're going to find some way to pay the bills to keep mm-hmm. the lights on. But generally speaking, if you if if they call you Saturday at the at the nightclub to do a quick five ten minute stand up set, you're gonna do it yeah. because that's what you wake up, you know, desiring uh, and, and have passion towards executing. So we find ways to take care of our responsibilities. I will say I'm just very lucky and blessed that my desire and passion match with my responsibilities. Mm -hmm. So I get, I have a career, I get paid to do what I love to do. Mm -hmm. And you have for so long. And that's, I was going to ask when you mentioned what, you know, call of a lifetime, what you would call the call of your lifetime, Mm. which has to be many or, or how would you maybe define sons of anarchy versus perception Mm. at, Sons of Anarchy is, you know, was one of the most popular TV shows on television when it came out. And here you are, I think season seven, if my memory serves me correct. Yep. Yep. One might argue, well, that's obviously the call of the lifetime, but somebody else, you know, might say something differently. I was just reading about Robert Pattinson, who said he was just on, just interviewed in GQ. And he was saying that, you know, he, he goes down the art artistic trail mm. and then, pops up every now and again with something more mainstream, but that's incredibly planned. He says every kick at the mainstream can, 
is only an opportunity to to go further and riskier down the art life, uh, the art film yeah. rabbit yeah. hole where, you know, you can lose your career in this avant-garde genre that nobody's right. just such a niche group of people are going to watch. Right. And, right. and, you know, so what would he define as his call of a lifetime? I don't know. I want to know yours, like, or many and, and why those were the moments. And here's, and it's a very easy answer. Every call. <laughs> yeah. uh, anytime you get an appointment, that's a call. That is a possibility. That is an opportunity. There are no small roles. That's one thing I tell people. You could have two lines on a production. And if you deliver them with, you know, passion, the right tone, the right approach, the right, you know, kind of uh, cadence about yourself, you could have the best moment in the entire movie, yeah. but only had two lines. So there's never, ever a small role. So with that said, every call is the call. Now, does every call manifest itself to a booking? Not necessarily. For every yes I've gotten, I've probably gotten 100 no's. Mm -hmm. But even those no's, they were calls. They were opportunities. And so you give them the same grace, the same respect. Now, some appointments, yeah, I might say, I don't think that's for me. I'll go ahead and I'll pass on that role. But I still have the gratitude of, wow, someone wanted to see me or they were willing to see me. Much gratitude. Now, when you then do get a yes and you're like, OK, wow. Sons of Anarchy wants me. Perception wants me. Uh, Rookie wants me. The Day After Tomorrow wants me. Uh, NCIS wants me. All these yeses that I've had in my career have just been an, more of an opportunity to grow artistically because each of them offer a different experience. Mm -hmm. It's not that one's better. They're just different. Mm -hmm. Even ones where I've been on sets where maybe, maybe it wasn't the most pleasant experience it still was a, a life lesson. So that means it still gave me something to, to, to grow with. Mm -hmm. So every opportunity uh, where I've been on set, where I've had a yes, it's just allowed me to grow artistically. And also to, it's also, you know, allows you to grow the, the, the depths and nature of your fans. You know, when I did Sons of, Sons of Anarchy, I had people coming up to me, Joel, that typically wouldn't have come up to me uh, about something I did on Nickelodeon. <laughs> you know, or, I've been or following you since some, Nickelodeon. Yeah, you know, I, I you know, I, you get a biker guy coming up to you, going like, "Oh man, loved you on on Sons of Anarchy." He's like, "Yeah, he's not coming up to me necessarily saying I loved what you did on that so Raven." You know, but again, it opens mm. up the world. It opens up uh, the diversity factor. Uh, diversity, just not only being an uh, ethnic situation or or, or 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 race, but just culturally, just mm. you know. Thing, things we're all into different things and so by working on these uh kind of mosaic having a mosaic career and just these very diverse projects again it's just opened me up to meeting new people i love meeting people uh -huh. i love giving those rj hugs so i just meet i've just met uh a variety of fans um because of these different projects i work on but then artistically i'm just growing because i just get to be around these awesome individuals is that where you work on your your continued skill as an actor is on set and through the diversity of roles? Or is there a off-camera coach training regime, if you will, 
Yes, yes, yes. Or was there? <laughs> it, it's really, it's really, it's really like a, it's a yes to both because off camera, you know, when you're home, when you're in the shower, you know, when you're taking a poop, <laughs> you're, you know, you're having this time to yourself. You, I personally am just thinking about the uh, the approach uh, of being an actor. It's all emotion based. So it's like, OK, how would I approach being, you know, uh, frustrated? So in my own little space, I might play out a scene on my own or or think about, oh, I loved when I saw Joe Pesci in a casino and how he played. He did this one little thing with his hand or with yeah. his eye. I like that. You don't want to try to implement that if I'm in, if I have to do a, a, a care if I'm in, in a, you know, executing a scene where maybe the character is doing something where they're tired or they're you know they're about to blow up i'm gonna take that little thing he did oh i loved how don Cheadle did this uh in oceans 12. so your piece you're, you're taking fragments of things you've seen life moments things you've experienced and you're kind of cultivating your own personal approach once you then get on set yes you're you're you're, you're also getting uh a little bit of, an, of a little bit of an extra polish because you're actually in the game mm -hmm. you're actually doing it but what you really more so get is the ability to try something new. It's like, hey, I'm going to try this 360 that I've been practicing, you know, in the gym. I'm going to try it in this game and see what happens. You might you might make it. You might not. Uh, once you're actually on the playing field, when you're actually there, you know, on the battlefield, you get a chance to try things out. Mm -hmm. Do they work out? Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. If they work out, you do again, you you still are polishing yourself even in that moment because yeah. the, there's there's never a time I say there's never a time that I don't feel like I can't polish my confidence. That no. is I feel like <laughs> I feel like growth is always like, how can I make myself feel even more confident about my craft? Uh, if you feel like you've gotten there, and you've hit that pinnacle, you kind of get stagnant and boring. <laughs> yeah. oh, well, I was always curious about that in the film industry because there's never, there's never, well, maybe there's no more direct positive or the spectrum of positive mm -hmm. to negative feedback on any one project. You're only as good as your last project unless, okay, sure, if you've built up a lot of credibility, you can have a dud or two. And I've always wondered, is it the ignoring the reviews, ignoring the noise and just saying, hey... It wasn't great. Critics didn't like it. And more importantly, the audiences didn't like it, but I learned a lot. It was, it was still a good experience On to the next one. Or if it is a confidence shatter, shattering confidence moment. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we often talk a, a, another basketball reference, you know, you, we talk about how, you know, someone like Michael Jordan, all the points he made, all the championships he won, but you know, he missed a lot of shots, mm -hmm. but I don't think he thinks about that. I never think about criticism. No, no, no. The the greats don't. Yeah, they don't they, waste they don't, time. They don't waste on, time. We waste time worrying about their misses, <laughs> counting their shot percentage. Right. They they you cannot they, be great and and focus on that stuff. You can't. And I honestly, personally, I don't like to think about criticism. Do I know it's there? Absolutely. Um, have I been critiqued? Negatively, positively, absolutely. Uh, I am proud to say that a lot of projects I've been on, I've gotten great feedback. Um, I never get bad feedback like, oh, he's not a good actor or he can't act. 
if anything, it might be, oh, that wasn't the greatest project. Right. Or, or man, I wish that I wish it had ended this way. I wish RJ's dialogue had been more this way. Why was his character this way? Um, yeah, you're going to get that. You're going to hear that. But that I don't live off that. That doesn't fuel me. And I think it shouldn't it shouldn't be in anyone's forefront for the most part if you're trying to execute greatness. Executing greatness to me, it's not about the money you're getting or the accolades. Executing greatness is about how are you moving humanity? Mm -hmm. So it's like when you're as an actor, if I'm giving the performance, how is it going to make you feel? The movie could suck. But if you can go back and say, man, but I love that moment when RJ said, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. Like, then that means I did my job. I made you feel something. I made you think about something. And so executing greatness to me is that how are we, uh, you know, evolving individually, but then how are we also supporting others evolution? How did you cultivate this attitude and in, in and this level of positivity in in Hollywood over such a long career? And what an environment that certainly has its toxic components. Yeah. And yet here you are 30 years in, just the most positive human being I know. Where did that come from? Uh you know, it's it's interesting. We often think positivity comes from positivity. It can, but then oftentimes positivity can come from being in a world of negativeness. Like, it's like a, when a caterpillar goes into its cocoon. It's like something beautiful is about to manifest, but think about what, think about what that caterpillar is going through in its cocoon. It's uncomfortable, it's transforming, but it's, it's building its strength. And a lot of times being a positive individual comes from seeing a lot of negative things being around a lot of negative people, having a lot of no's, being criticized, being judged. You know, it's like literally as an actor, you walk into a room, well, we now self-tape, but when you did walk into a room with the casting director, it's like you were basically just exposing yourself. It's like it's, you're just walking in naked and you're just showcasing yourself and putting on a performance and then going, okay, nice to meet you. And it's like the vulnerability that that, that type of job requires you, you, you can go one of two ways. You can become very depressed, very sad, very, you know, uh, internally judgmental. Um, I just told someone this the other day because uh, she's an artist and she was explaining how she's constantly beating up herself. And I said, well, you should be very careful of that. I said, because when opportunity presents itself and that someone comes knocking at your door, if you've beat yourself up, then guess what? Now you're not ready. I said, don't, don't, don't destroy your preparation by knocking yourself down because then when the moment comes, you already look defeated. <laughs> so I personally decided through all the, the turmoil, the stress, the negativity, how do you combat that? And the best way to combat it is to have this kind of internal confidence, this internal joy, how you speak to yourself the things that you say, uh, if you practice positivity again, it'll come out. You don't have to be around positivity to practice positivity. And that's really the ultimate uh, kind of button on that is that I practice positivity. I don't have to be around it to be it. I have to practice it. It's like if you're in a gym and, you know, all the equipment's there, everything's accessible, but how are you using it? And 
someone else might be using the weight machine completely different and they're going to get different results. But what are you doing for yourself? Uh, if everyone in the gym is overweight, does that mean you have to be overweight? And on the flip side, if everyone looks fit, if you go in the gym 200 pounds heavy and everyone in there is 150 pounds, you know, did you then say, I guess this isn't for me because everyone looks like they're in shape? No, it just means you have to look in internally and say, okay, let's get to work, damn it. <laughs> let's get ourselves together and let me put, let me put in me what I need to have to continue the journey of getting in, you know, in shape. <laughs> you reminded me of sometimes <laughs> when I walk into like, you know, when I'm, in, when I'm traveling and maybe I'm in LA and you go into a gym and everyone's so fucking good looking, you're like, <laughs> what the hell? And I'm like, where is the dive bar gym that I can go to? <laughs> Where's the one that's for people like me? Yeah, like the one that's got mold growing in a couple right. of corners, but the machines right. work. They're a bit rusted, yeah. you know. I, and, I, and it's really, it's, I mean, it's so funny. While I use that analogy, I've been in both of those situations. I, I've been in gyms where you walk in and you're like, wow, I am really out of shape. And <laughs> I feel terrible about myself right now. And uh, okay, but then I have walked into gyms where majority of the people are out of shape, but you got this one female or this one guy in the corner who like looks like, you know, Wonder Woman or Batman. And they're just like, oh, just, you know, going hard. And you're, like, you're like, man, okay, that person doesn't need the environment to be their motivation because yeah. they're the best looking person in this gym right now, right? They've got that confidence. So if you walk into a gym, which I have, where you're like, I clearly am the weakest link in this LA fitness right now. Mm -hmm. um, what is my motivation? If I if I'm using them as a motivation to, you know, empower myself, wonderful. But just I have to say, okay, what am I saying to be my own encouragement? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how I have always lived my life. I said my own inter internal encouragement can create my positivity or even my negativity, you know, my hate, you know? So uh, what are you putting into yourself at this level of life? I can give credit to my parents too. Yeah. They put a lot, they, they, they exposed me to a lot of things. Some were, some things were good. Some things weren't very good. You know, it's life. No one's perfect. Parents aren't perfect. No, it's how you take it. It's how you take it. Well, I imagine you have, have incredible parents. And I do want to talk a little bit about growing up down, down the road, but I, I, I would also, I think it's, it's truly amazing, sincerely, truly amazing what you've been able to accomplish in terms of this internal, this internal dialogue and shifting it positive, because I find in our isolation, that is the hardest thing to do when, because in our isolation, we have ourselves and we have our critic, our inner critic, our shadow, whereas in a group environment on set, whatever, there's so many energies and you can kind of pick and choose which one you want to play to, or if you want to play to the opposite of it, like you said, sometimes the negativity, it makes it easier to play positive. Right. Right. And I guess that, you know, that leads me to, you mentioned that now it's all self take versus going into that room. And I've been in that room. I, I auditioned for a few things as a kid, uh, like young kid. And I didn't get it. Actually, no, I got, you got stuff. What'd you get? I got look who's talking. Wait, what? John Travolta. Okay, get yeah. this. I got I got fucking look who's talking. <laughs> and then on um, 
on set. You've I, never I, told I, me this. <laughs> but. I, I forgot. So I've been kissed by was Cindy Crawford? No, no, Kelly, Kelly. I can't remember the uh, Kirstie Alley. Kirstie Alley. That's it. Yeah. And I wouldn't stop acting up. I wouldn't stop crying after I'd already landed the role. Oh. <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting there on set. You know, my parents, my parents' dreams dying before them. But <laughs> so. I that was when I was super young. I don't even remember it. But, uh, but then after I, I, I did a few things and and I remember the dead, mm. quiet energy of walking into a set room. And I've done this with pitching businesses, too, or even being on, on Dragon's Den, which is your guys a shark tank down there where yeah. you're pitching the producers before you're actually on set. And there's just this eeriness and this stagnant energy. Mm. So the two the two pronged question there is. You know what for you? What's the difference between self take benefits self take uh, versus walking into that room? And the second question is just how are you managing expectation and acceptance mm. on that roller coaster of always reading and 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 wondering? You know, you not making it personal. Did they like me? It's no. Did they like me for that role? So right, right. Well. It's not called show friends. It's called show business. Right. And so you have to always remember it's a business. It, it, it's, it can be personal, um, but it's, it's more so personal in the sense of like, you know, they're clicks within the business. So certain people prefer working with certain individuals because they feel like they have a better rapport with them. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. But at the end of the day, it's, it's a business. So you might not have gotten a role simply because, yeah, you weren't properly suited for that role or maybe someone had a deal that they had to fulfill. Like maybe they had a three picture deal. And so this particular role, they're like, hey, we had to give it to this other individual to kind of like, you know, finish that deal, that contract. But we really liked you, RJ, but we're going to re remember you for the next thing. You never know. There's all kind of politics behind it. But I will say what what happens when you get on set is you you feed off of each other's you do feed off of each other's energies you feed off of each other's creativities so it's like the way martin lawrence and will smith bounce off of each other there's just a certain chemistry there that even if you gave those same lines to two different actors it might not have the same you know explosion on camera it might have a different kind it might you know make you feel differently it doesn't mean it wouldn't won't work but what Will Smith and Martin Lawrence created together is something unique and special. So that chemistry, uh, when I used to walk into a room, you actually are showcasing not just your talent, but you're showcasing your persona, your personality, your your the way you move. People get to see that. You get to kind of see how you vibe with the casting director. Then you see how you vibe with the director and the producer. You say like, wow, okay, if we were on set, this is what it probably would feel like. Then you, we used to do chemistry tests, like where you actually were with the other actor or the actress, and they were taping you to see, okay, let's see how they look together on camera. Because that's the other thing. How you might look off camera may not translate the same on camera. Like there are, there are actors and actresses where off camera, they can't stand each other, they don't get along. But as soon as they get in front of that lens, there's something magical. Mm -hmm. And you're like, audience loves this. We love it. So that so we got to play on that. But off camera, 
those two people <laughs> wouldn't normally talk yeah. to each other. It, uh, it reminds me, just as a digression, of when you say that um, Fleetwood Mac's mm. legendary album that. Mm-hmm you know, the story goes that they were fighting, they were thinking of breaking up and yet it was the pinnacle of their, their creative delivery. There you go. And there's, and, and I guess that's sort of another question. If we can remember to get to it is, is the difference between creation and and friends, you know, like show business where you're creating together. doesn't mean you have to like each other, but you're tapping into something else. You're tapping into something. You're very much so tapping into something that's very, uh, spiritually uh universally connected where yeah when you cut when it comes to creating art you may not necessarily like the other person uh if you do that's just an added bonus but you may not like them but what you create is something that the world needs it's like uh if two people get together and have a child and let's say the parents divorce things didn't work out but the separation in no way devalues the life of the child that child is still important that child still could become the next president or the next you know uh great scientist or the next great doctor like the life that was created is still something beautiful and important even though there was let's say separation of personalities between the parents and so it's the same principle with art you might not necessarily connect on personal levels but if you create something magical uh, and that was something that, again, walking into a room, you could find like, wow, I, this, I didn't know I was going to create something wonderful with this other artist. With self-taping, it's like, you know, you're just you're throwing darts at a wall. Uh, you're like, I could give a great performance on a self-tape. But then once I meet the actual actors. Right. Right. It may, it, it may not work. Right. And so that's a gamble that you're really taking. Yeah, there's certain benefits with self-taping where you could do multiple takes on your own and find the best one. I did 50 takes. All right. I love take 39. It was great. I just nailed it. Awesome. From your perspective. (laughs) And and it's my perspective. No one's giving me any feedback. No one's giving me adjustments. And so those are the things that I do kind of miss being in a room for for someone to give me notes, say, hey, RJ, that was great. This time, try doing it this way. Uh, I will say again, going back to what we talked about with accuracy, sticking to things, um, practicing and really like being passionate and having that desire. Now I've gotten to a point in my career where I pretty much, I know what I'm doing. Doesn't mean I can't grow as an artist, but generally when I read a script, I can break it down very well. Mm-hmm. So where it's like, okay, my self-tape isn't going to be a bad self-tape. If anything, it, it might be, hey, because this recently happened where they go, ha, we think we want him to read for this role now right. based on that self-tape he just did. Got it. It's not going to be it was a terrible approach. It's like, ooh, I love what he did, but now I want to see what he does with this role. Mm-hmm. And so even with Rookie, what was great about the Rookie, normally self-tapes, they like you to read with a partner. I tend to not like I don't really like doing that. I like to read it by myself. I like to turn the scene into almost like a monologue where I'm just reading it by myself. And that's literally what I did for the rookie. I had no reader. I just read my lines. I reacted to the not to the other characters lines, even though you didn't hear it, but I emotionally reacted to it. And I booked the job, Mm -hmm. whatever I tapped into, they said, that's, that's James Murray. 
That's our guy. Once I then got to set and I'm actually working with the other actors, I mean, it just magically fit. It just magically fit. And then that was season three. I'm now season four. I did three episodes. Again, started off as a guest star. There's three episodes in, se in season three. Now I'm over six episodes in season four. That's beautiful, and man. That, there's, there's this level of, of trusting the process mm -hmm. and life. It, what your story kind of reminds me of. I, did, you, did you watch Entourage? I did. I did. Yeah. Remember, I don't know what season it was, but it was where Vince was. He was playing his first ever uh, non-leading guy. Mm. And he was some sort of Bush firefighter. Yes, I forgot what season it was. And him and the director were not getting along. Not getting along. Yeah. <laughs> retaking, retaking, retaking. Anyway, it ends up blowing up. He ends up leaving the set. But then time, uh, no, E sends those tapes mm -hmm. to Gus Van Sand, the, I don't, the director who did like Goodwill Hunting and stuff. Again, right. This is all fictitious on the storyline. Right, right, right. Loves right. those takes. You're a leading guy in this role. Right. And it maybe that answers the question of, of how you manage what you expect versus what you accept. Because I've always believed that mm. accepting is, is where happiness is, not expecting. Is that you just, you trust the process that you're in? Is that fair? It's very much so fair. You have to trust your choices. Like we live in a world too where, oh, I got to make the right choice. Well, it might not be the right choice, but guess what? It's a choice and that's okay. Choosing to not do something is a choice. Mm -hmm. uh, the point of it is accepting the results after yeah. your choice. And the results might, we could say are good or bad. We could put that whole negative, positive label on it. Making a choice to do something or to not do something. Uh, it's the results of it all that we have to use to, as the benefit of our life. So accepting something, how do you then, how do you then proceed to the next level? So oh, I made this choice and they thought I was better for a different role. Great. Now, does that mean I'm going to like this different character? Am I going to have a, a better connection? Who knows? But if you accept from the choice you made to give a particular performance, a studio and a production company thought you were better for a different role, accept that because now, and I'll give a great example. Now that you're accepting this new role, guess what? What's about to manifest will probably be the biggest blessing, one of the biggest blessings that you, know, you ever could have received. And uh, I say that a good friend of mine, uh, Tariq Lowe, he, he's in Germany right now uh, with his wife and his daughter. Uh, he's originally from New Jersey. We met 2015 doing a project and literally we auditioned for the same role. Now, he was the person that he did such an amazing job that they said, we want you for this other role, which is the brother of the character he was initially auditioning for. Mm -hmm. So the, the role that we both auditioned for, I ended up booking. But because Tariq's performance was so amazing, they gave him the role of my brother who was actually a bigger role than mine, <laughs> right? They both, both characters mattered, but he got this even, in my opinion, it was, I don't, let's not say bigger. It was, it was, a, it was a strong role. It had a, a, a different outcome. 
But again, to me, it was just as significant as his initial character he auditioned for. What we created together was magical. Mm -hmm. And had, let's just say, you know, he had not given the performance he gave, I don't know if the outcome would have been the same. You know, the choices he made just, again, I thought what he did as, as 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 my brother, no one else could have done that but him. And in my brain, all actors think this way. No one can give what I give, which is true. But when you then see the creative process that even producers and networks take, you have to remember, we trust them too to watch what we do. We trust them to say, hey, RJ, Tariq, you guys are perfect. But Tariq, you're going to be this guy. RJ, you're going to be this guy. And then when you then see it all put together, you go, wow, that was great. They did see that. Mm -hmm. But we gave them something to work with. Mm-hmm. That's think, so cool, man. That's <laughs> so cool. We don't, we don't give people things to work with to actually have some kind of, you know, puzzle piece. Like, you can't put a puzzle together if there's no pieces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, that's one of the things as an entrepreneur that I, I miss is I miss that, that person telling me, not necessarily bossing me around, but sharing, sharing in that process of just that bird's eye view Mm-hmm. Saying, I, what if we tried it this way? Because it's so myopic sometimes being an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to, I wanted to just use, you know, what you said about choice as a as a slight pivot mm-hmm. into self funding projects. Mm. <laughs> I, I, I was just reading this article about uh, Francis Ford Coppola, who, yeah, I've actually talked about this twice because it was just a very inspiring piece where. He self-funded Apocalypse Now after having five Academy Awards and his his newest movie that he's been trying to contemplate for 40 years, he's also going to self-fund it. And his view on that is how important keeping your art personal is Mm -hmm. in terms of, in your case, what is it that you're bringing to it? Right, if right. you know that's that's makes it personal to you in his case from a directorial or a writing standpoint or you know how the budget he wants to to use and maybe you know we can talk about that open ended with regards to uh doing pilots mm-hmm. or we can talk about it in the music industry you know where you're you're playing and i i honestly don't know a lot about you know your choice into doing more music but i do know that you produced other people's music and you financed that yeah. uh and just like where like where does this come in to say i'm an actor i get paid i do my job well people like me i have studio work etc but i need to explore the creative vein here with with more risk with my own capital mm-hmm. you know so a, uh, a director friend told me this many years ago Ed, the main thing in life is to make sure that the main thing stays the main thing Mm. Once again, the main thing in life is to make sure that the main thing stays the main thing. And so when you know what your main thing is, let's say in my case, it's acting. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a thespian. I'm a performer. That's my main thing. Zoning in and tapping into that, I've been able to fund other ventures uh, of my life, such as music. The way I approach music, it's not a, it's not a financial career. It's a creative career. Some people, if you are, if you're a person who plays a guitar, piano, if you're a person who comes in on sessions and, you know, you're just, 
you know, you're just doing some pay to play type stuff. Yeah, you, you're using music as a financial career, right? Creative career to me is you're doing something because you got to get it out. It's just something inside of you. You got to do. Otherwise, you're going to go insane. Um, but when it comes to a creative career aspect, and again, as an actor, I, I'm able to live out my creative career and my financial career through acting. But when it comes to music, it's very much so a dynamic that makes me feel like a better person, which if I feel like a better person, then I think I'm going to be a better actor. You know what I'm saying? So for me, when I'm doing music, it's an outlet. It, it actually helps me be a better actor simply because I feel like I'm certain limbs within my, within my, my artistic expression are just being able to be cultivated. So music is just, again, I used to be a dancer. So music has always been in my life. When you then say, okay, well, how do I have a creative career at music? Well, sometimes you might not necessarily reap finances from your products, but you might have to spend money to actually like get certain equipment, get a microphone, get a keyboard, right? So my main thing of acting funds me needing Pro Tools, <laughs> me needing Logic Pro, right? It also might, it, it has funded, my acting has funded me, you know, saying, hey, I want to get this artist in the studio so I can get their music made. And for me, that's always just been a way to give back. For me, it's a supportive system. When I see an artist and I go, hey, I would like to connect you with some engineers I know, get you in the studio, you look like you've never been in the studio or had that experience. And that's something that has brought so much personal joy to my life is to give someone an opportunity to get the experience, the exposure. Now, where they take it, that's up to them. But I just want to help that person in their creative process. I'm not looking to get anything back from that. But funding your own dreams, it's a privilege. Not everybody can. Not everybody can fund their dreams quickly. You know, some people, it takes decades for them to actually, you know, build that studio they've always wanted to or make that movie that they've always wanted to make. Uh, it's a privilege to be able to fund your dreams. I think it's beautiful also that, you know, one can fund their dreams. But if you don't have the money, let's say, to, to, to build that studio or to create that, that film you've always wanted to make, you still can be creative in the process of like writing, like people who, who write scripts. And I've told this to someone recently. I said, hey, you may not have the money for your film, but write it, write a page a day. Yeah. You know, again, stick with it, do something because let's say in five years, you meet someone that wants to give you $3 million because they just believe in you. Well, if you can say, hey, I got that project ready to go. Perfect example is Sylvester Stallone. He wrote Rocky. He had it in his back pocket for years. And then it finally manifested. Right. I remember hearing that story. Now so that it's one that. of those things like let's imagine he hadn't wrote it. And then someone came with an opportunity. Hey, I like you so much. Let's go. Let's go make a movie. Yeah. Oh, you know, I, uh, I got to go figure out what I'm going to do. Uh, you know, I got to know. Yet, uh, no. He's like, yeah, I got this movie. I did. You know, it's one of those things where he was ready. So when you have a 
when you is that, have is that your first Sylvester Stallone terrible Sylvester Stallone and that was maybe second time doing it but again, this movie made you know? I give it to you over me <laughs> <laughs> this guy this guy was ready this guy was ready so when you have your once again your creative career is you getting out what's inside of you mm -hmm. find ways to do that without a dollar mm -hmm. when you have your financial career it's it's more so again how you're getting how you're receiving compensation like okay i do these things because it gets me paid mm -hmm. but if you stick with the main thing so if 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 writing let's say let's say let's say writing lyrics let's say you're a songwriter and that's how you make your money great so you're, that's your main thing. Stick to your main thing. But as that, as that financial career is feeding itself, you then have the ability to go into your creative career, things you've always wanted to do, mm -hmm. and fund it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an amazing process. I think that's an amazing thing to be able to do. Again, not everyone can do that, but they are separate. And so if you don't have the finances yet, you still can have a creative career. Yeah. Is now, the... Uh you know, you mentioned Hollywood's political. That's the reputation. It's it's closed. It's political. But has has it changed so much with with all the different streaming networks? Just the 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 insatious appetite for for content. Where that and 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 to an extent, YouTube, like Zac Efron, has a vlog, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. That that this argument that you're making that you which is the right one. It's hard. It's not an argument where just having your thing ready. Is there a, just a better chance today, assuming that what you have is, is decent, you know, and you're committed to it, passion, desire, et cetera. Is just a better chance today than when you started to, to find a lane in all of these new lanes that are there. I think it's very, it's a lot easier to have your creative career nowadays. Mm. Like, most people have a phone. You can pull out a phone and they have apps now where you can make a beat on the phone. And then after you download it, you can go put it on uh, Apple Music, on iTunes, right? So I think the creative process, I think the ability to develop things uh, has tremendously gone to a whole nother level compared to when I got started in the business in the 90s, uh, because of just the things that are accessible to us now. However, I do think the industry and most industries uh, are a little convoluted right now, where there's like so many people wanting to do a particular thing. So it's like maybe in the 90s, you had you might have had 100 people in a particular lane. Now you've got 100,000 people in that same lane. Yeah. And so everyone's trying to figure out, well, how do I stand out? What makes me different? Uh, Hey, I, you know, I, I, I went and downloaded this program and I wrote a script. Great. There's so many scripts out there right now. And it's wonderful that people can actually tell their story. But then you have to realize, OK, how are we getting all this information out now? And I think something like YouTube, where I applaud YouTube, is back in the day, if you wrote a script, it was a much more tedious process, not just because of actually writing it, you know, because maybe you didn't have, you know, maybe you only had a typewriter, <laughs> like not just the process being tedious, but then actually finding a place where it could get made or where it could actually see the light of day. Mm -hmm. Now, if you sitting in your room, 
go get your final draft, go get, you know, word document, write something, call a couple buddies, say, Hey, I want to film this in my bedroom, this scene that I have in my head, film it, find a way to, you know, a program to edit it or for film, a friend can edit it for you. Then the next thing you know, you can go put that project on YouTube mm-hmm. and send out a link to all your friends, friends and family to watch. You could then even go further and say, hey, I want to go put this in a festival. Mm-hmm. What festivals are accepting shorts? Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? So it's like you now don't really need to wait on someone else yeah. to move your dream further. Now, again, if you're someone that says, well, I want to get my thing on HBO, you could get there. But you can actually you, you it can find legs before it says gets to, you know, mainstream television. Mm-hmm. Uh, Issa Rae is someone who did that. You know, she created a show. Awkward Black Girls on YouTube. It was a popular, was a popular show. It was getting so many hits. It made it very easy to transition into her great opportunity with Insecure mm-hmm. on HBO. Mm-hmm. You know, so she didn't have this wasted time of not actually polishing her craft. I, I hear I hear you. And it's interestingly enough, I, I guess this is somewhat of a, a somewhat of a parallel. Maybe not. We'll find out in two seconds. But <laughs> I was reading I was reading. Uh, Anthony Bourdain's oral biography mm-hmm. as told yeah. by the people in his life and right, right. his first literary agent, because he was an author first. He was a crime author mm-hmm. before okay. he was a food author. He wrote wow. crime novels Didn't and he that. had got picked up by Robert Downey Jr.'s one of Robert Downey Jr.'s production companies where all they were doing was they were like buying up the rights mm-hmm. to books that either hadn't been written, but stories that they wanted turned into novels that they just shelved. They didn't even, they just wanted, I want 10 crime novels based (laughs) in New York, based on corrupt cop, drugs, prostitutes, whatever. (laughs) Here's three different writers and maybe some of them get published. Maybe they don't, but the end goal, like the foresight and the budget, you know, paying him, you know, whatever, 30 grand, I don't know what it would have been at the time, which may have been a lot of money yeah. with maybe no intention of ever using it, but knowing that one of these things is going to hit, right. you know, just yeah. hit, going to bat, like mm-hmm. as long as you swing those misses. And I just, I was trying to think about that in terms of today. It's like, even though there's so much out there and there's those hundred thousand people, most of it's, it's not that it's not good. It's just that there's still, that producer, that director has something exactly what they're looking for, that studio. And it's right, like, right. I don't know. I'm just, I, I, th- I, I think know. the beauty, I think the beauty though, of that again, while I, why I truly believe it's very, you know, oversaturated, convoluted with a bunch of stuff. That's not to be negative to say that mm-hmm. it's just to say, you know, there's just, people have the ability to get their stuff out there. Right. It's not a matter of, is it good or bad? It's just a matter of, do people like it? Uh, do, is, is it catchy? And I personally don't think you need to worry about if something you're doing is catchy or not, especially in in the present time, simply because there are projects where, you know, people made them 50 years ago and then all of a sudden it becomes a cult classic or or a song that someone created 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. And then you get some new hip hop producer who starts sampling that person's music that no one ever heard of, but that, but this particular artist had a connection with them, sampled their music. And now 
Now, all of a sudden, you've got these hits on the radio and the person who created the, the original version is now getting paid if they're still alive they're, or their families getting residual income from their music being sampled. Right. When you put something out there, you're putting it out there for it to be received to somehow make, once again, life better. Mm-hmm. It's like I always say, if, uh, if maybe I don't win an Oscar, maybe I don't become super famous. And these are things I don't aspire to have anyways. I'm not trying to be super famous. I'm not trying to win an Oscar. If it happens, I will happily accept it, but that's not my intended goal. But if one day in my life, you know, however long I'm on this planet, if one day I inspire the next superstar, or if I inspire the next president of the United States, someone who says, man, I really, I I remember there was this guy who was this actor on this show called The Rookie. And I just remember he had this one line one day and the way he said it, it just made me think about life differently. And now that person's trajectory becomes something magnificent. If I can be a part of that person's inspiration, then I did my job. It's like, you know, for me, that's the whole point of it all. If you can be a part of someone's inspiration who does something, I mean, it's all magnificent, but it's all, it's all a, a pyramid. It's all, a, you know, we're stacking on the growth factor. So if you don't put it out there, you know, you won't know what it can do for someone else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel you on that. So you have to kind of get out of that, you know, discomfort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's that- so hard. You know, we have, we have this, we have this, uh, this, this idea of legacy attached to credentials, but really legacy can be just attached to these divine moments that inspire somebody else that you may never know about. You may never know about it. Right. I I think about a little bit with what you're saying, just going back a step with art versus brand. Mm -hmm. So what I mean by that is I, you know, I was pitching a show recently uh, and the agents like, well, we like to, once we take the show in, we like to make sure that, before we start pitching it, the artist, whoever he is or she is, has 150,000 followers on Instagram or social media. So that there's an insurance policy that there's an audience mm-hmm. versus saying, you know, is the art good enough to stand on its own? And we can bring the audience to that art because it will work. And you're a guy who, for as long as I've known you, barely ever touched social media. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. I, I mean, you have it, but you're not active. There's like 10 posts or something. And the, and the old account, I think, had like 20 posts. You know, I don't know. I think they changed names from, yeah. from yeah. The, in the last you know decade or whatever. Oh, yeah. You know, where, so where are you making <laughs> that choice? How is that coming into it for you? It's um, it's a it's it's a it's a new factor that over the last I'll say five years and again it is still new because i've been doing this for so long i had i i'm i'm embracing uh its existence which you know it is a thing it's a real thing social media how many followers does this person have and is it like you know like you said it's some kind of insurance factor on the back end where we know okay well we at least know this many people are going to go see it based on this person's following i respect that approach i think what we have to be careful is that we don't make that the only approach. Um, I think there's, you know, there's various ways you can approach 
problem or, or, or task or, or uh, you know, again, a puzzle. There's, there's various ways you could touch, you have to uh, uh, tackle. Some, some people like to start on the outsides of a puzzle. Some people like to figure out the center. It's all, you know, whatever makes you feel best. But for me, I, uh, I've, re- I'm, I've learned to respect social media. I've really learned to respect it and understand that it is a new thing. Again, I don't think it has to be my approach for my level of success based on the things I want. Now, if I woke up tomorrow saying, I want to be a superstar. Well, then guess what? You might have to implement some new habits. You might have to become the person that posts three times a day. You might have to become a person that does that particular thing. I, I don't, I can't say that that whole social media aspect taints the art because again, branding isn't anything new. Branding has been around for years. The point of television is branding, advertisement. (laughs) How do we get people to go buy these products? That's the bottom line of television. (laughs) It's always been that way. There's nothing new there. So the, the branding part and the, you know, the, the art part, they're always going to be separate. You can exist in a world of artistry and you never really have to worry about branding from the, from the perspective of uh, how am I going to, you know, make more money. In my particular case, I, I look at branding as how I conduct myself, the type of, the type of artist I am. Not so much how, uh, how am I going to reach more people necessarily, or how am I going to get more fans, or how am I going to get more money? I use my perspective of branding is just how, when someone watches my performance, what do I want them to see? Mm-hmm. You know, like Jim Carrey, he created a particular branding approach with his artistry. Like, yeah, you know, how he, how he attacked a role. He had his own unique twist to it. Now, mind you, that then also became a, a very big financial branding when you look at what he was doing with movies like Mask, Ace Ventura. You know, it's like that's a specific thing that was very much so profit. But artistically, he was he was he was he was creating a particular uh, essence about himself. Yeah. And he even he even went so far as to say that the essence of Jim Carrey yeah. was in itself a brand and it was Correct. not. Who he was, he not the role, the role, and then Jim were both two different conversations. Yeah, Yeah. they were different conversations, right? (laughs) I I totally hear you on that, and I think that I I respect that a lot. Uh, I respect that for so many reasons, but I'm really curious because you know where do you plan to go with it? As you say, you're you're starting to look at it, take it, you know, look at it a little differently than maybe you had. And in that same vein, you know, we live in a highly politicized world, and it seems like every month or every three months, there's you know, from Black Lives Matter to Stop Asian Hate to the pandemic to Ukraine, there's something that people are turning to celebrities movie stars, musicians, and saying, I need your opinion on this. I need you to weigh in on this. I, I think, you know, specifically, well, pandemic was a big one. And the the idea that that actors needed to be for or against, you know, the, the, a vaccine or for and against someone who may not have been for the vaccine and, and taking these stands 
which have nothing to do with their art or their political career. And then you go to basketball and you look at, okay, LeBron James is someone who's taken very, mentioned him a few times, very, very Strong specific stance. political right. stances uh, and people tell him to shut up and dribble. Mm-hmm. Where do you see your role in, you know, in, in being a, someone people look up to for the, for, for what's happening in the world and where you need to chime in or not chime in? Well, as I mentioned earlier, I love meeting people. Mm-hmm. I love speaking to people and you know, uh, encountering people and having dialogue. While I'm not a person who cares about the amount of fans I have on social media, I do care about people being a fan of me when they meet me. Now, I know not everyone's going to like me, but I do personally, I would like what? for people to like me. What? Right? That's right. not yeah, true. Not everyone's. <laughs> Not everybody's going to like you, right? Oh, man. But I do strive. You just got to hug them. <laughs> I know. Just give them a big, <laughs> tight hug. But I do strive. I do strive yeah. for people to like me. And that's not a bad thing. It's okay to want people to like you. You then realize not everyone is, though. And you just move on with life. So I like the idea of people being a fan of me. But I don't seek this kind of fan base through social media where I have to have all these followers. That being said... When I'm playing a role, I'm more confident being a role, being a character than I am being RJ. Because even though I want people to like me, I do get very sensitive about people's judgment about me, who I am, not the characters I'm playing. When people say, oh, that, that character was X, Y, and Z, it doesn't really bother me because that was a character. But if someone's saying, oh, RJ, I don't like that you this, this, or that, I'm like, okay, how do I then help? change this person's perspective of me. Like, I care about what this person thinks about me. Oh my gosh, I'm self-conscious. Like, I am that kind of individual. I am also the same person who's learned how to say, okay, hey, you can't win every battle. And hey, not everyone's going to like you. And hey, guess what? You know, some people are not going to see things the way you see it. That's okay. When it comes to how I feel about something, um, I have to be very careful simply because... um, I don't want people, I don't want my words to be, you know, uh, uh, taken the wrong way, misunderstood or misinterpreted. I'm very conscious about, okay, I'm, I'm a literalist. I want to make sure people are understanding what I'm saying. But I also understand, too, that I can go out and say something that gets misinterpreted and then it can affect my job opportunities. Mm-hmm. Someone might say, oh, well, we can't really hire RJ because, you know, that controversy when he said X, Y and Z. And you're like, but I, I wasn't coming from a bad place. I didn't mean it this way. Oh, well, you know, we, your liability, you know, there are people in this industry who have just been at the wrong place at the wrong time. And literally it's affected their job opportunities. So I'm very conscious about where I'm at, who I'm speaking with, what I'm saying while I'm with them. A, I care, but also B, I care about my career. It's like, I, I like working. So you know, it, it, it's a very juxtaposition where it's like, okay, what am I juggling here? But it is nice when you can, you know, express something that does matter to you. You know, Black Lives Matter, it does matter to me. All lives matter to me. But Black Lives Matters to me. It's an example that I've shared several times. Cancer matters. Lupus matters. Sickle cell matters. Um, AIDS matters. But if you're at a breast cancer event, a fundraiser for breast cancer, you don't go to that event yelling, hey, lupus matters too. 
hey, sickle cell matters too. Hey, guess what, buddy? We understand that lupus matters, but this is an event for breast cancer. And we're bringing awareness to breast cancer and we're trying to raise funds for breast cancer so we can get that resolved. That's all Black Lives Matter is it. Right now, it's an argument about a specific issue. And the specific issue is police brutality towards people of color, specifically black, black people. That's not saying that no other lives matter. That's not even saying that other ethnicities don't experience police brutality. It's just saying in this moment, with sirens in the background. I hear that. That's the first one I've heard. <laughs> in this moment, oh, they're coming to get me. Uh, in this moment, we're just saying that, hey, Black Lives Matter, we're just bringing an awareness to a specific issue that we don't want to, you know, feel like it's not being acknowledged. But in the same breath, it's not disrespecting or rendering other lives. Mm-hmm. All lives do matter. So, yeah, I am proud to stand up for that. Now, if someone comes around and says, hey, RJ, we're not going to hire you because you think, you know, Black Lives Matter. Well, you know, guess what? That that job then wasn't for me. Yeah. Uh, and I'm pretty sure I'm still going to get work. But if I was to engage in a political conversation about, you know, where I politically stand, well, at times I tend to refrain from those conversations yeah. because you're like, even if you say, let's just say, you have an association with Republicans or you have an association with independents or you have an association with Democrats, all of a sudden, the weight of that political party becomes your definement. You could be the nicest person in the world, but if you say you're a Republican, people have judgment. If you say you're a Democrat, people are going to have judgment. You know, it's like we totally disregard the nature of that person's character simply because the fact that they have claimed a label, well, now we look at what does the label define? Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, don't get me wrong. Labels matter. Labels have, you know, certain reputations behind them. I get that. But just like anything, we all can exist in with various labels. Like mm-hmm. one label doesn't define you. It's like if I go into your closet, I might see you have shirts that have different brands. One might say Ralph Lauren, one might say, you know, Gucci, whatever. Those are different brands and you can rock them at different times at the same time. But I think we live in a world right now where we think we only can exist under one label. Mm -hmm. Like, think about it. Let's go back to Hugh Hefner. All right. This guy created magazines uh, that exposed women in a certain frame, in a certain manner. But that wasn't his whole life. Playboy found itself venturing into all kinds of territories, even politically. You know, the Jazz Fest, the Playboy Jazz Fest was a way for African-American musicians to showcase their music. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, what? I, well, yeah, I, and it, it just puts the label, you know, even on you know, someone who's a porn star or a Playboy model is to say that is all that you are as a human being. Is Right. And it's not true. And, and labels make it easier from the standpoint that we're all confused <laughs> about so much of that, what's happening in our life and in the world. And so labels, stereotyping. OK, well, that simplifies it. Let's just let's just go with that. Let's right. Just go with that. Like, oh, I get I get asked all the time. So what kind of actor are you? What do you mean? Well, I mean, like, do you do are you a drama? Are you a dramatic actor? Are you a comedic actor? Well, well first, I'm just an actor. <laughs> I've done drama i've done comedy you know i've, I've done various things uh 
are you a theater actor? Well, I haven't done theater yet, but one day I plan to do theater. Well, are you a film actor? Well, I've done film. Are you a TV actor? Well, I've done that too. Because guess what? I'm an actor. So that's what I do. But yes, we live in this world where we like to say, well, what type of actor? Okay, RJ's in this box. So that's where he exists. And he can only exist there. And anytime he goes outside that box, uh, I'm confused as the audience. It's unacceptable. I need you to go back in your box, RJ. I can't wait till we broaden our brains and our minds to say, you know, it's okay to be eclectic. Do you think that'll happen? A decade, so. two decades. Do you think all this rattling, I, I, pandemic I, I, division, all these divisions will just make people be re-entrenched further into their echo chambers and tribes or realize, wait a second, what the heck am I doing in this echo chamber and tribe and like dive I mean, back I, in? I don't, I, I honestly, Joel, I, I, I can't say. I have hope for it. I mean, it's like, I'm, I'm at a point right now where, and I'll say this on this interview, I think Dave Chappelle is funny. I think he has some great stand-up, great comedy, great material. He's made me laugh. But to say you're a Dave Chappelle fan nowadays, for some people, it's almost like a racial slur yeah. because of the things he said recently in his Netflix specials. Some people have taken great offense to him, where even if you say you like what he does, all of a sudden you're part of the opposition. And it's like, well, maybe I agree with I don't agree with everything Dave Chappelle says, but it doesn't discredit that he's funny and it doesn't discredit that he's had some great material. But now I'm just at a point where it's like, wow, you know, I have to really look at who I'm speaking with if yeah. I bring up the name Dave Chappelle. I was really always that way. <laughs> I know and I I hate that they went after comedians because comedians were and I say they not knowing who they are, but but what Dave Chappelle said that was then very much amplified by media is pushing something where they forget that comedies was is always supposed to be the great the great uh, unapologetic call yeah. it as it is maybe i'm a bit irreverent maybe i get it wrong safe ground for us to just like let down our guard and laugh at ourselves and yeah. we have to be able to laugh at ourselves, the good, the bad, the stuff we feel sad about, maybe like, you know, maybe not right away, maybe not right when a wound is fresh. Right. But if we lose that. Well, it's always been, it's all it, that type of, because comedy, everything exists on levels. So comedy has levels too. You know, there's family comedy, yeah. there's raw comedy, you know, there's in between. Uh, there's, you know, there's R-rated, PG-13, there's all levels of comedy. But for the most part, you know, uh, the R version of comedy has always been presented as a gracious offender. Where it's yeah. like, okay, you don't go to a comedy club where it's 1030 at night, people are half drunk, <laughs> uh, half naked, and assume you're going to hear like, you know, Bible verses. What, what <laughs> oh. comedy club are you at where people are half naked? <laughs> uh, I'd rather not say the name. Uh, rather not say the name. Just DM me. Like, you don't, you don't, you don't expect, I will, you don't expect to walk into that venue and hear someone, you know, start talking about Jesus necessarily or, or reciting scripture. You kind of know you're going to get something raunchy. So even with that said, 
I totally respect if someone gets offended. Mm-hmm. You know, I totally respect if you if someone felt offended, I go, hey, I care about how that person feels because no one wants to feel that way. And I don't want someone to feel that particular way. But then you also you start getting confused because then you're taking the variables of, hey, but but that's what's to be expected in that environment. So well, why were you there in the first place? And then well, if that's not thing, if those if those are things you don't want to hear, then don't tune in. You start asking yourself this question. They say, yeah, but it, just because I don't want to tune in doesn't mean it's OK to say, though. It's like, yeah, we're right. I mean, maybe it shouldn't be OK to say maybe things, some things are taboo. Maybe some things are better just kept, you know, in the privacy of your own home. I get all those conversations. I really do. It's just one of those things. How do we get to a point where it all exists? Mm-hmm. And I mean, and exist under the umbrella. If, if there's if there's ever a box I had to put that in, I would say, how do we put all that in the box of peace slash respect? Mm-hmm. How do we put all those different viewpoints, all those different scenarios? How do we put that in the box of peace and respect? Where it's like you can look at someone and say, hey, I don't like that joke. I, I found that to be offensive, but I still love you. I still care about your life. And rather than trying to cancel you, I'm just going to say, hey, I don't subscribe to that. Yeah. And I don't subscribe to it. I don't tell my friends to subscribe to it, but I'm not going to cancel it because, first of all, you know, that's that's your own personal choice. I think when you, I think what we have to be afraid of is when we get to a point where we start disrespecting one's existence and then become violent and violence is always birthed from fear, something we don't know. Right. And which is what cancel culture is. It's violent. It's a violent action, you know, you know, striking somebody in the face, but you're striking them down. You're saying, right. And and it's all built on cancel culture, regardless how everybody wants to, you know, present it. It's all based on, um, Fear. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that it's not needed. You know, I get cancel culture. It's not to say that it's not needed, but a lot of times we'll use the cancel culture flag as a way to not have a dialogue. Because mm-hmm. you're afraid of it's a fear of what you feel about yourself. You can you can still be offended, uh, justifiably offended by something somebody said, and maybe they shouldn't have said it. Right. And maybe, like you said, you don't subscribe to it and you don't encourage people to subscribe to it. But as soon as you go to the need to say this has to be canceled, for the most part, not in every circumstance, that is a reflection of undealt with, unself-aware, why am I so irate about this Mm -hmm. that I need to cast all of my negative energy on this thing and not say, wait a second, even though I don't agree with this, why am I so upset by it? Right. And when we solve that problem where people, whether that's through the school system, the governments, good friends and family saying, helping us you know, shine that mirror back on ourselves so that we stop casting the stones out. Right. Right. That's, you know, that's a step. And again, I say that saying it's, it's hard. I'm not in the shoes of, anyone at any given time when they feel the need to cancel somebody. So I can't, I can't speak to that. All I know is the times that I've acted out and done something that would parallel that I was afraid of something inside me, something I wasn't dealing with something inside me. Deep down. I mean, that's like the argument that we, 
have right now about defunding the police. And, you know, I, I say that's a that's a fear based statement because defunding the police. It, truly, the, the, the most people who want to defund the police are criminals, because when you defund the police, you actually get less police presence. And most people in this God given planet, when something goes wrong, someone breaks into their house, if there's an issue with their car, they call 911. It's like, it's just, it's just a habit. We know I, I got to call 911. So if you know you need that resource, defunding them isn't the solution. Mm -hmm. It's just a statement that was made and you're like, do we really know what we're saying when we say that? I think we need to train officers much better and training generally requires more funding. Now, I don't know if we need to overfund the police. I think they've got a lot of money already to work with, but defunding them is not going to help the situation. So defunding them to me be, was almost like a cancel uh, yeah, uh, it could have been like, like reform, like, re reform, reform, yeah. reform. The or reform the or reform the aspects inside. Train the them better. Yeah. Exactly. Give them really, you know, give them better tools to work with. I mean, we're out here asking cops to be protectors, counselors, psychologists, like, you know, cops can't deal with everything. So we really need reform. We need to retrain. We need to better uh, mm -hmm. give better tools to these officers, but defunding them. It's like saying, cancel them, mm -hmm. do away with them. And guess what? Criminals want that. Yeah. That's why right now, especially in Southern California, but across the country, you know, crime has gone up. There's a, there's a surge of, of, of uh, home invasions and theft. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, yeah, because we just went through this whole argument of defunding the police, but now we need them. So it's like, let's really watch our words. So the whole canceling thing, I think I... I personally feel if you really want to cancel something after you've sat down, had the conversation, discussed, uh, you know, uh, possibilities and, and various options. And there's still like this, you know, let's say dark cloud <laughs> or there's just this like very evil energy. Now, let's say, hey, you know, what? we tried everything we can. Let's go ahead and cancel that particular thing because it's just not. It's just not working. And someone might say, well, RJ, that's what's been happening with the police. Like we've been trying and trying. And it's like, yeah, I get that. However, that's a particular thing we can never do away with. We need we need protection. And so change takes time, right? Like we, you know, we need better protection. Yes. Yeah, And, and, and your point about the conversation is, is such a good a good one because we're so reactionary. Yeah. It may be more in the Western cultures than in others. I can't, you know, I can't really speak to that either, but I'll, I'll look at the Iraq war as an example, okay. Mm -hmm. a, a war that I think was likely entirely unjust and unwarranted Warranted. and too much American blood spilled for what I don't know, but the emotional pitch in the country was an 11 mm -hmm. because of what had happened. Right. And it was rightfully an 11, you know, you've seen, you've just seen this thing happen and, and you have, your friends, your family, you're scared, but you don't make the decision to invade a country, to defund the police until you've sat back, collected yourself and had very thoughtful conversations. Yeah. But what is it? Okay. Now we're chill. What, what is it really? That's the problem. And how do we fix that? Right. But we just never let ourselves have the conversation. It's like this happened. We need to act now. And then we're left 
without the long-term vision of like, it's going to take 10 years, but we can make this better. It's like, this is the hot topic. What can we jam through in the next six months? Which leads me to ask you, in just recently, the, I believe it was the director of Black Panther mm. was accused of like a bank in the South. You know, are we any further along two years later? Uh, or is it some, have you, you know, is there some improvement? Is it just the same old, same old? Like, what's your thoughts on that? Well, you know, it's, it's a tough discussion to try to understand someone's personal experience or, or perspective of life. And when 9-11 occurred, if you were in New York or immediately had someone who was, you know, uh, connected to you, who was, who was on the plane or who was, uh, you know, in one of the buildings, the Twin Tower, uh, one of the towers, I completely understand how your first reaction is just going to be outrage and you're going to be like, you're just retaliation. I understand that. And, yeah. and that's, that person's reaction is, is right. Uh, what happened in that particular situation was all of a sudden the leaders of our country used that rage and said, Hey, let's, let's let this fuel our agenda. Because as you eloquently said, once things calmed down, people started asking questions and guess what? those questions actually started coming back to our government. Well, wait a minute. How did these guys even get on the plane? <laughs> wait, why didn't we have better security in the first place when it came to the airports, right? So then you start going, oh, I'm Iraq and Iran and all this. I'm mad at these people over here. The dust, the dust settles and we go, okay. It's not to say that the war didn't have some benefits those benefits one will have to express to me, you know, and, and really dive in to help me understand. Cause me also, I know I don't get it. However, let's say there were some, some points to that. Got it. Cool. Now that things are settled, I've got some questions that have nothing to do with the people we were just fighting. Now I got some in-house questions. So then we start doing this kind of internal sur surveillance of like, all right, how are we, how are we really conducting the way we move in America with our security. So then we start, you know, that judgment. Now we're saying, okay, how do we maybe do things differently to prevent another 9-11? And you then start looking at some of your, you know, political figures and saying, hey, maybe that person shouldn't be in office anymore. Whatever. You start going down that particular rabbit hole to then acknowledge, have we gotten better? If you don't know your past, you're doomed to repeat it. So on some levels, Yes, things have gotten better because we talk about 9-11. So we talk about that. So we improve our security at airports. We make these adjustments. But nowadays in America, we're having this argument about, well, let's not talk about slavery and let's not talk about, you know, the 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 ugliness of Amer that Americans have caused on other Americans. Let's not talk about, you know, the uh, the terrorism that has been committed on this land. Let's not talk about it. Let's act like it never happened. If we continue down this particular path, moments like Ryan Coogler being arrested for getting $12,000 out of the bank will still be here. We have to talk about the terrorism and the ugliness of this country so that we can improve it. If we act like it never existed, one day it's going to completely resurface itself, right? Because we're acting like it was never there. 
And I think what Ryan went through was so unfortunate. Also, it happened in a part of our country where they're still figuring out a lot of things in Atlanta, Georgia, Georgia as a state. But, you know, the laws out there, the new voting laws that they've implemented, it's like it feels very much so like trying to prevent growth. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's sad to say you may not see something like that in Los Angeles or New York. Some a black man going in saying, hey, can I pull out twelve thousand dollars? I'm giving you a note. I need this. But I wasn't surprised to hear something like that happening in the South or specifically in Georgia, because they're still trying to figure out a lot of, you know, racial diversities out there as far as trying to get people on the same page and trying to kind of get rid of an old way of thinking. So there's a lot of parts of our country that we still have to work on. We still have to work on the country as a whole, but there's a lot of places that are still kind of using old traditions. And again, if we then act like those traditions never were around, uh, if we try to act like certain things never happened in this country, yeah, in 20, 30 years from now, what if slavery comes back? What if terrorism comes back? And uh, Daryl Davis, a guy that I think you and I have talked about, the guy who we actually became Ku Klux friends Klan? with the Ku, Ku Klux, Klux Klan, Klan, Klan member. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You and became friends with a Ku Klux Klan member. I think he just one was on go, Logan. Yeah. He yeah, just, yeah. It's like one might go, well, why would you do that? I personally say, hey, let's have a conversation. Mm-hmm. Let's actually talk about it. It's not to say that you're going to agree with Either side, both sides, you, you might not like the conversation at all, but it should be had. And all this Mandero went and was like, hey, why do you dislike me when you don't know me? Mm-hmm. That was the that was the foundation of his whole journey. Mm-hmm. Why do you dislike me when you don't know me? Mm-hmm. And at the end of it all, it's like, yeah, if you're a KKK member, you might still have your own rhetoric about how you feel. But maybe you might adjust the way you feel because you actually have a conversation with the person who's of a different color, of a different ethnicity. And so I am, I, I completely encourage us to talk more, mm-hmm. even have conversations with opposition, have conversations with the opposition that you call the opposition to maybe realize why you think the way you think. Because a lot of times opposition is just internal turmoil. turmoil. Mm-hmm. I have a problem with you because I really just have a problem with myself. (laughs) And if we talk and all of a sudden you have dialogue, you might realize, wow, I really don't have a problem with you. You're fine. I got to figure some stuff out within me and get this resolved. And then I can actually then sit down and have a drink with you at the bar Mm -hmm. and, and, and it'd be, you know, copacetic. It doesn't have to be that we think the same. It doesn't have to be that we agree with everything, but if you can actually have an amicable conversation with, with yourself, and then an amicable conversation with someone of a different upbringing. How awesome would, can that be? Because we're going to, you're, you're inev- it's inevitable to not learn something when you sit down and talk with someone. I agree. I agree, man. I agree. There's so much wisdom in there. And, and I just like, it reminds me of you know, growing up in Canada and reading the history books about our, our Aboriginal, indigenous, mm-hmm. our Indigenous, uh, ind- excuse me, Indigenous peoples, a hundred percent of what we read was horse shit. And <laughs> like talking about it in a completely untrue, missed the entire reality of what happened. 
And this not being like, you know, this from the from from the standpoint of actually acknowledging it and, and talking about it is so new mm-hmm. in this country. And you just got to give your head a shake and you're like, well, no wonder we're, ha- you know, places like Georgia, et cetera, are having such a hard time. I don't know what they're teaching them in the school books, but I can say for myself, if I grew up and was told one thing and then I find out that that was unequivocally not true. How do you reconcile that easily? It's right. It's hard. It's hard. hard to. I mean, you can change, but now you're having to. You're basically having to destroy all this data. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're having to basically like wipe a hard drive completely clean, <laughs> yeah. so that you can put new files in. Mm-hmm. So you're basically telling someone to. You're totally dismantling how they were raised, what they were taught, and people take pride in what they've learned. So if all of a sudden something you thought you knew to be true for 20, 30 plus years, someone then comes along and says, hey, that's not actually accurate. Mm-hmm. For you, it's like, wait a minute, are you saying I've been lied to? You know how you, for, for people, that's a that's an offense. They got to get over the offense first. Wait, I got to give over the fact that I was just lied to. Now that I've gotten over that, hey, can you help me understand the truth? What What is this, mm-hmm. you know? And so, yeah, Georgia... The people, especially of Georgia, you know, I, I, I think everyone is beautiful. There's, there's a lot of beauty in Georgia. But clearly with that incident, you see there's a lot of work that needs to be done in Georgia. Uh, and, and again, we've talked about a lot of various places in America where we're like, wow, OK, I didn't know that they were still dealing with this particular thing. And when you're on the outskirts and what I mean by the outskirts is if you're living in a point of privilege, I don't live in Georgia. Right. So for me, the areas I frequently visit, even though I have, I do go to Atlanta, but the places that I frequently visit, stories that I hear of uh, things happening in, 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 let's say, the South sound foreign to me. But if I had to live my life if continuously saying, oh, that can't be true. I live in Southern California. I live in New York City. Whatever's happening in Florida, that's not real. That's, that's somebody made that up. No, there are things that are happening down there that you need to become aware of, maybe even to the point where you can participate and help change it, right? But if we live on this kind of, well, that's not my problem, that's someone else's problem, well, then the country doesn't become improved. You know, it's like Georgia's, Georgia's issues, Texas's issues, California's issues, they're all of our issues as Americans. But then on a bigger conversation, whatever's happening in Canada, whatever's happening in Australia, as a global citizen, it's our humanitarian issue. Like global warming is affecting all of us, regardless what continent you live on. <laughs> global warming is a real thing, but it, we can't address it like, oh, well, that's Europe's issue. No, that's all of our issues, dude. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so let's address it. Let's, let's stop. We can't allow people near us who may be friends, family, or even, like I say, opposition or just someone who's foreign to us and hear the rhetoric, oh, global warming is fake. No, you have to politely look at that person and say, it's not fake. It's very much so real, but let me show you why it's real. Let me show you this data. Let me show you, let me actually take you to places where it normally is 80 degrees, but it's 45 degrees right now. Mm-hmm. LA being one of them. Yeah, no, and, and, and that's, <laughs> that's true. And the, and the But the problem remains the politici- politicization of the, uh, of the, the solutions 
and and the, and and how our capital capitalist tendencies we're a capitalist country and it has its positives but then they latch onto the solutions in in ways that aren't necessarily the solutions but i'm going to backtrack this to just a little bit to this, this what you just described was awakening right awakening to what's in me what's happening out there and seeing it differently the data oh that data was wrong i am now awake leading into woke right, right. and the that is the positive side of woke is that we're, we're the positive side of woke is this eyes wide open trying to see everything differently but what we're now seeing is it within the structure that we have today with media with social media it leads to the sensationalization of the this the the stories it leads to the sensationalization of the solutions in a way that we can't protest um we can't process them without getting up in arms with each other these are things that take time conversation we shed a light on something that doesn't mean cancel that the next the, the other guy the next day it means oh okay that shit's real i got to look at that and we got to talk about that but when we're screaming and shouting about it, we're not finding our way to the solution, at least long-term. So I find that like, it's, I'm just, I'm just so, I struggle with how do we navigate our way to the gift of wokeness versus the curse of wokeness, which is, you know, saying, well, if you don't think this way, you're, you're an idiot asshole. And it's like, can you give, can you give the person a minute you just said can i can we sit down and talk about it can we find the point at where you can intersect with this information and and get it because maybe you read the wrong book or a different book and therefore there's a lot of reprogramming that has to go on in your mind to get there (laughs) i think i I think the thing that we could could do in that case because you know shouting is not always a bad thing You know, sometimes it's like arguing, you know, when you're married, sometimes you argue. That's just that's part of the relationship. That's part of the process of marriage is sometimes you're going to disagree. And sometimes shouting, you know, it could lead to, you know, great makeup sex. You know, sometimes shouting has its benefits. Uh, What we have to acknowledge is how we approach things. Yes, what we're saying. And as I said, even if you let's say you break down to someone the truth about global warming and for them, they go, Hey, I don't believe that. I don't, I don't see that as still being true. I think it's, I think it's fake. I think it's, I think it's um, a hoax. I still don't have to cancel that person. What you then ultimately have to do is you have to say, okay, you know, there is a real thing called, called uh, learning the hard way, you know, a hard head makes a soft butt. What we have to realize is if one day that person is that comes a proverb around, <laughs> in the book of RJ, it is. <laughs> you have to then when that if that person ever comes around, rather than dismissing them, you have to just say, okay, hey, come in. You know, I'm embracing you. I'm not. I'm not going to make you feel bad. But then we also have to realize, not in not in the conversation of global warming, but we make arguments as human beings. Oftentimes, both sides can be wrong. You know, bringing global warming back into the equation, let's say global warming doesn't really exist. 
okay, sure, doesn't exist. But does that mean we should still treat this planet like it's not our home? Mm-hmm. Let's say global warming does not exist. Fine, it doesn't exist. But what we can for sure say is we all see that pollution in the air right now with that big dark cloud. <laughs> mm-hmm. So how do we resolve that? Because we both see it. How do we not throw trash on the ground? How do we, you know, uh, take care of our forests more? Like, let's disregard what we disagree about, but let's find what we do agree about and work on that. Because oftentimes when you find your common denominator, that then bursts into other conversations that maybe we disagreed about. And then we find common ground on those topics. I think oftentimes with shouting, while I get, I advocate shouting at times, in shouting, you can still find your common denominators. That's how we have uh, democracy. As long as you're listening, too. As long as That's you're listening. You, yeah. The yeah, declaration yeah. of, you know, the, the, our, our, basically America's democracy, you know, how, we, how, how this country was founded, you know, both sides were arguing and they found common ground. To say, okay, you know what? Uh, we're going to have First Amendment, the Second Amendment, this amendment. And you go, okay, well, we agree on these things. And that becomes the foundation of how we operate, because these are the things we do agree on. America was established, again, there's a lot of corruptness here, but our laws are centered around, hey, at the end of the day, if you go out and commit a crime, these are the laws, you know, that you will find yourself under. If you go out here and you go, you know, uh, uh, throw out a racial slur, you know, there's going to be repercussions for that. If you go out here and you go rob someone, there's repercussions for that. And as as an American, we go, hey, the the real repercussions fall under these guidelines. So if we could more and more find our common denominators, the things that, you know, do bring us together and, and, and it's not hard. I mean, first of all, I just say life itself is our common denominator. We all know what sadness is. We all know what joy is. Let's connect there. Let's find the things that bring us uh, peace. You know, let's, let's really have a conversation about just being humans. And then I think we could really go a lot further. We oftentimes don't have the basic human basic, you know, life dialogue conversations, uh, we tend to look at people and say, oh, they don't matter or, oh, their issue isn't my issue. It's like, I guarantee you, it's all relative. The way a person is feeling about a particular topic, I can find something in your life that parallels that. And then you would understand how they feel. That's why I say the whole Black Lives Matter. If you've ever been around someone who has been, you know, inflicted with cancer, uh, uh, lupus, uh, sickle cell. These are things I bring up because I know people who have had these things who have even passed. They all mattered. All the illnesses mattered. I have a cousin who died from sickle cell. I have a grandmother who's dealing with breast cancer. So I'm sure I, someone who's, ever, who's listening to this right now has someone who they've lost to an illness. Well, that can be our first conversation of what it's like to lose someone or dealing with someone who's, you know, dealing with an uh, currently dealing with an illness. If we talked about that, we'd probably more than likely bond. Mm-hmm. 
But unless we're doing that, it doesn't matter whether you believe in global warming or not. We're not talking about the things we do find common ground on, even in the shouting. Let's find out what we are centered about. That's a wonderful sentiment to, uh, I think, to maybe leave it on RJ. It's been over two hours, and I know we. <laughs> I mean, I could go all day, but oh, I know, uh, I don't know we, if uh, my we, kids would we, appreciate that. I understand. I, I wanted to just, you know, maybe end it on officially on, you know, what are you working on? Is is there anything you want people to know about that's in your world? Or can they find you? All that good uh, stuff. Well, I mean, again, I'm just, I'm working on myself as a human being first, uh, learning to be a better husband, learning to be a better father. Uh, not that I'm terrible at those jobs, but you can always get better at those jobs. Uh, as far as my, you know, creative career, uh, I'm still working on music. Uh, my wife and I, we actually are writing together. We're writing some pilots. We're getting our thoughts on the paper, uh, things that we would like to see manifest and come into fruition one day. Uh, my financial career, I'm still doing voiceovers uh, for different companies. And as again, currently uh, I'm working on The Rookie on the ABC, uh, just finishing up season four here. When does, that air? when does that usually air? That comes on on Sundays. Always the time to always mess up the time. I want to say it's nine, nine or ten, uh, but comes on Sundays. Uh, but you can watch reruns on Hulu. Um, so, yeah, so that's my current financial gig. Uh, but it's also a joy. I mean, it's the, the level of joy that this show brings is incredible. Great cast, great crew. And, uh, and we'll see what life has next um, for me on the screen, on the big screen, small screen. But having a good time right now. Yes, brother. And uh, I appreciate you. I appreciate you, Joel. Thank you, brother. I appreciate you. The world is better. Hollywood is better. Thanks, man. Hulu is better. <laughs> having you in it. Thank you, dude. Appreciate you. Bye. I remember. I'll talk to you. Peace. As always, thanks so much for listening to The Ramble. You know, there is a lot of podcasts out there, so we thank you for choosing to listen all the way through on this one. You know, we want to be part of the, the solution, the, the good questions, the things that move you and inspire you and make you want to connect deeper with yourself and others and all that great stuff. So if the spirit does move you, subscribe, share, post, anything. We'd be forever grateful. And if you have any comments or feedback, good, bad, ugly, it doesn't matter. We're here to listen. Guests you think we should have on. Of course, send them along. Thank you. And until next time, peace.